Good morning and happy Easter. He is risen. He is risen indeed. There's no outline to download today. This is just a sermon that I hope will encourage you and uplift you and maybe even challenge you a little. My name is Steve Flora, and so I would like to start by asking you what your growing up time or even current time has been in how you compare Easter and Christmas. You know, Easter just doesn't get the same attention in our culture as Christmas does it. We don't put up Easter lights on an Easter tree. We, we don't sing Easter carols. There's no Easter movie like It's a Wonderful Life, Spring Edition, or The Grinch That Ruined Easter. We don't get Easter presents. Well, maybe just some new church clothes. But Easter's main attraction, at least when I was a kid, was hunting for Easter eggs that they told us were brought by the Easter Bunny. So, back when I was a little boy growing up in a small little town in Montana, there were even a few people, a few kids, that had these little baby chicks that were dyed pink or lavender, and they would usually pass on in a few days. Then there was the obligatory dying of the Easter egg, my mother would put it all out on the table and, and get all those stains and dyes ready. And, of course, we would make a mess and get it all over our clothes. And then she would get kind of annoyed with us. And, and besides, you know, in the end, you dye these things. Then you don't want to eat them because they're hard-boiled eggs and you're a kid. And you want chocolate, marshmallow, luscious eggs. So compared to Christmas, Easter just didn't seem as good. But I want you to think about it from a little bit different perspective. Well, a biblical perspective. Jesus' birth really only started God's plan of redemption. And then his death on the cross, the crucifixion, finished the sacrifice. But the resurrection sealed the victory and defeated death. So Easter is the resurrection difference. That's the name of this message. The resurrection difference. The resurrection is when human history changed forever. I want to look, though, at how did the people back in Jesus' day respond to the resurrection? And I have for you today three responses. First response was fear. People, well, the disciples in this case were afraid. So let's read in John chapter 20, verse 19. I'll let you turn there in your scripture, John 20, verses 19 and 20. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Well, the disciples had been looking forward to victory, as I've talked about in some previous weeks. They, instead, they witnessed an execution. Imagine if you had invested three and a half years of your life and toured around with Jesus in the countryside. You left your job. You were away from home a lot of that time. So when Jesus was crucified, their dreams turned to a handful of sand. They felt confused and afraid. 
So now we find the disciples hiding behind locked doors for fear of the Jewish leaders. They think, well, they're going to come for me next. I've invested all this time, but you know, my dreams have turned into sand, and, and now I might actually lose my life. I might be the next to be nailed on the cross and die an excruciatingly slow and, and painful death. And then in the midst of that fear and that wondering what's going on, suddenly and unexpectedly, Jesus appears with a simple message, a message of peace. He speaks first to their fear. Did you notice that? The first words he says, peace. In other words, do not be afraid, as he had said back in John chapter 14. So after our physiological needs are met, that's food and water and and shelter, their next physiological need, well, the psychological need really is safety. And so it's hard to imagine the future when you wonder if you're going to live to see it. Well, they're paralyzed with fear. So first thing today, Jesus meets fear with peace. Jesus meets fear with peace. Now, peace doesn't mean all of our circumstances are great. No trouble comes. In fact, peace doesn't mean God keeps all harm and all suffering or all trouble away from us. It really means that on the inside, in our hearts, we have that calm assurance that we are securely in God's hands, no matter what the circumstance. Now, if we look at our world today, it looks, wow, during this crisis of a pandemic, there are fewer wars, there is lower crime, so hey, peace is making a comeback in this time. But then we have to ask about our individual selves. We aren't feeling all that peaceful, are we? You know, we are are fearful of all the things that might happen to our loved ones, to our health, to our jobs, to our finances. And so we don't really have a lot of peace right now, do we? See, we're worried about many things. And, And there are even conspiracy theories abounding that reveal even more underlying fears. So this Easter, let me ask you, how is your fear level? What is stirring in your heart right now? And how is it affecting you? How is it affecting your fear? How might it affect those around you? Do you fear the future? Are you emotionally hiding behind closed doors like the disciples closed off from relationships? especially as they get more strained during a time of being pushed together as a family week after week. But let me ask you, how will you respond if our current situation has lasting consequences for you, for your family, for our nation, for our world? Will you still live in God's peace? Well, there's a guy named Doug Baltzer, and he wrote a book, and in the the book he says this, When we promise to our churches that God will take care of them and everything will be okay in this crisis, will God be seen as good if their spouse dies, their business goes bankrupt, their job is lost, and their retirement savings gone? If we haven't discipled God's people, he writes, into seeing God's provision as perfect, 
even in the face of suffering and loss, then the church is at risk of missing this opportunity to be the profoundly distinct salt and light we were created to be. See, God's provision doesn't always mean a life of prosperity and plenty. And in the West, that is kind of how we think about it. If God's blessing you, then you're going to have prosperity and and safety and security and all these things. What Jesus promises isn't that you will be prosperous beyond your wildest imagination. He promises he will meet our fear with his peace. And so those around us, those out there that we're being salt and light to, they need to see not how we handle prosperity. They need to see how we handle crisis, how we handle it when things aren't going so well, when when the chips are down. So if you want to drain the swamp of fear, you've got to allow the clear living water of Jesus to fill up your heart. So how are you doing with that this Easter morning? Jesus meets our fear with peace. Well, the second response first is about fear to the resurrection because the disciples feared we might be next on the cross. But the next response was doubt. And I want to look in John chapter 20, verse 24 through 27. John 20, verses 24 through 27. Thomas, one of the 12, was not with them, it says, when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. And Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Well, I want you to notice that Jesus didn't ridicule Thomas and his doubt. He let Thomas have his doubts. He gave Thomas proof that the resurrection was real. He let Thomas touch his hands and sighed. So Jesus is saying, you know, Thomas, I know this idea of a a resurrection is bigger than your mind can understand, but I'm going to prove it to you. So don't be unbelieving, but believing. Don't let doubts keep you from something great. Now, when I discovered Jesus back in college, and I was, you know, like 18 years old, I wanted evidence. I wanted proof that Christianity wasn't just some emotional trip or a a blind leap of faith where you kind of put your mind aside. Like Thomas, I was and am a rational type who needed proof that God really is who he says he is. The resurrection for me was a key piece of evidence. So if the resurrection is concrete proof that Jesus is really who he claimed to be, I got to tell you, there's some wild theories out there about alternatives to the resurrection. People that say, no, it couldn't have happened. It's not even possible to happen. And so one of those that's actually recorded in the Bible, a theory is the disciples stole the body. Well, let's step back from that. I want you to think about this. What's the plausibility? 
this ragtag group of fishermen not trained in the art of war or battle. And so they overpower a Roman guard, which is 16-man commando unit, that if they failed to do their task, if they fell asleep at their post and such, then their execution was immediately following. And so we see in the scriptures, they promised, well, just say the disciples stole the body and, and we promise we won't kill you. So what they then said, so these, these fishermen and, and tax collector, whomever else was there, they overpower a 16-man professional like SEAL team and they move a, what is estimated to be a two-ton stone and they steal Jesus' body. Of course, it doesn't account for Jesus' resurrection appearances, but that was the explanation. Another one that people came up with later when medical science advanced, they go, oh, you know, Jesus really wasn't dead. He was just in a coma. He was like, you know, unconscious for a while. And then in the cool air of the tomb, he revived. And somehow, you know, he's bound up, you know, when they, when they, embalmed them. They were like a mummy. They just wrapped strips of cloths and put spices on. And, and John says there were like 75 pounds of spices. And so he's all bound up with these strips of cloth and these spices. Somehow he unbinds himself and, and he's free. And then he by himself goes, pushes away this two-ton stone blocking the entrance to the tomb. He overpowers the Roman soldiers by himself and then walks around claiming he is risen. I don't know about you, but these explanations, I think, take more faith to believe than God accomplished what Jesus prophesied that he would do. He would rise from the dead on the third day. So the second point, Jesus meets doubt with proof. If Jesus meets our fear with peace, he meets our doubts with proof. Now, you say, well, I wasn't there to see the resurrection. How do I know it was real? How do I know history isn't falsely reporting the whole thing? I would submit to you that the best proof is still changed lives. Have you seen God radically change lives? Have you seen someone who was healed, who were told they would soon die? Have you seen struggles fall away that seemed impossible to overcome? But when Jesus entered into someone's heart, they were healed physically, or they, their struggles, their emotional trauma was healed. And, you know, I think changed lives. I can say for my life, I see huge changes that I can't attribute to myself. So the more deeply that you know God, the more you sense his presence in every circumstance. Trust him and see how he works in your life in the crisis you're in right now. Just challenge him. Show me yourself, Lord. Show me in my heart. See, Jesus meets doubt with proof. So we have a response of fear. We have a response of doubt. Jesus meets the fear with peace. He meets the doubt with proof. Our third response is disillusionment. Disillusionment about the resurrection. Luke chapter 24, verses 46 through 48, says, Jesus said to them, thus it is written, he's talking to the disciples, by the way, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins 
would be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. So Luke records one of Jesus' many appearances, and he, in this appearance, he explains that that Jesus was saying, hey, you missed the point. Your expectations blinded you, so you didn't really see who Messiah was. It was in scripture all along, especially like Isaiah 53. But see, the disciples and most of the rest of Israel had expected Messiah to come not to suffer, but to conquer. And they were disillusioned that Jesus had not come to restore Israel and wipe away all their problems, as I've mentioned in the past few weeks. They wanted relief from the hard yoke of Roman rule. But Jesus came to give them relief from the hard yoke of the human heart. Are we any different today? Don't we have our own expectations how Jesus' kingdom should look? What problems maybe he should be fixing in our world? Is our political agenda more important than God's spiritual agenda? Do we miss where God is at work because it doesn't fit with our preferences? It's not what we're used to. Are we disillusioned because our spirituality is so neatly packaged in a box of church programs and carefully controlled behaviors? See, too many churches are run more like businesses than life-giving families, more like an organization than an organism. Is this why the church has had so little impact on society? We still haven't fully grasped that Jesus came to change hearts not set up an institution that doesn't relate to the world. So we are disillusioned if we don't get the external results that we want. But here's Jesus' response. I will meet your disillusionment with purpose. So number three, Jesus meets disillusionment with purpose. So Jesus restored their purpose in life. He says to them in that last verse, verse 48, You are witnesses of these things. See, Israel had gotten it wrong for centuries. They were called to be God's chosen people, but not to turn inward where by the time of Jesus, they would not even let a Gentile come into their home or they'd be unclean. See, they got so nationalistic and exclusive in their pride that they excluded outsiders. That was not God's plan. Look in the Psalms and you will see the nation's are supposed to come into God's temple in Jerusalem. And so Israel was supposed to go out and find them and bring them in to the temple to meet God. And that is not what they did. They were to be a beacon of God's righteousness, and they failed at that also. So God has given us now in the New Testament times a mission of reaching the world. But the difference now is that we are to go out to the world. No longer is there a temple in Jerusalem to come and worship in. Now we are the temple because God says, I will come and live in your heart and I will send you out with that message to the world to share about Jesus' death and resurrection. So we're to go out to them. And yet, you know, a lot of churches, they still build a fortress of safety and and convenience and comfort, and they just say, well, the world needs to come to us. 
But that's not God's plan. That's not God's purpose for you. It's to send you out into the world. The resurrection shows us how things are often not what they seem. They're different. God's plan. He's the master of snatching victory from the jaws of defeat. He tells us not to look at the world through our own human eyes, because when we measure things by our human eyes, we will only see human results. See, when we look with spiritual eyes, we will see spiritual results and find a purpose that defies the outward appearances, the outward circumstances, even in a crisis. So do you look through human eyes or spiritual eyes at your struggles right now? Think about that. Do you look through human eyes or spiritual eyes? Do you feel any disillusionment? Are these weeks seemingly dragging on and your tolerance is waning and and you're desperate for God to return things to normal? What if God is trying to get the world's attention and redirect our focus back to him and things will never be the same? Are you ready to adjust to that future reality if it comes? God is calling you to a kingdom purpose to redirect your focus back to him. The resurrection was this event that changed everything. It redirected the world's attention and changed history and would change all of eternity. Hallelujah. Let me close with a story. Imagine not hearing, but seeing the story of Jesus for the first time. Well, a tribe in the jungles of East Asia had not only never heard of Jesus, they had never seen a movie. And one forgettable, unforgettable evening, a missionary showed the Jesus film to them in their own language, visible and real, right there on the screen. And they watched Jesus heal the sick. They watched him bless children. But then they watched as he was held without trial and beaten by jeering soldiers. Now remember, this is they've never seen a movie. They think this is happening. And so they come unglued. They start stood up and they're shouting at these cruel men on the screen, demanding that this outrage stop. When nothing happened, they confronted the missionary running the projector. Perhaps he was responsible for this injustice. So the missionary stops the film. He explains the story's not over. They settle back down to their seats on the ground, holding their emotions in check. Then came the crucifixion in the Jesus movie. Again, people could not hold back. They began to weep and wail with such loud grief that once again, the missionary had to stop the film. He tries to calm them down and explain, now, okay, the story's not over. Please just sit and listen and see what happens next. Then came the resurrection. Pandemonium broke out, but for a different reason this time. The gathering had spontaneously erupted into a party of celebration. People were dancing, slapping each other on their back. Christ is risen indeed. And again, the missionary shut off the projector. But this time, he didn't tell them to calm down and wait for what was next. All that was supposed to happen, both in the movie, in the story, and in their very lives, it was all happening just as it should. So here we are, another Easter morning, hearing another Easter message. 
getting ready to sit down to another Easter dinner, maybe having watched our kids hunt for candy-filled eggs for yet another Easter sugar rush. Has the passion of the Easter story faded for you? Has the Easter story lost its stirring power in you? Are you ready to stand up and shout, this story has changed my life and I will never be the same? The world sees Jesus hanging on a cross inside a church or hanging on a chain around someone's neck. But the crucifixion means little without the resurrection. See, people still crave peace. They still crave proof. They still crave purpose. They don't know the resurrection has power to change their lives. So you can share with them the life-changing power of the resurrection in this worldwide time of crisis when people's hearts are so open. So will you accept that calling? And will you accept that purpose for your life? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for how the resurrection has changed the world and how it can change us. I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here listening to this that's fearful, that's doubting, that's disillusioned, that the resurrection story and the power of Jesus can come in and show them that I can bring you peace, I can bring you purpose, and I, Lord, I can give you proof that the resurrection is real because you will come in and change their hearts. So I pray, Lord, that you would just help us to live out the truth of that resurrection, especially in this time. In Jesus' name, amen.